Digest of the American Journal of Psychiatry. This is Dr. Susan Schultz with highlights from our November issue. This month we'll start with two articles on bipolar disorder. Our treatment in psychiatry feature focuses on bipolar II postpartum depression and a research study from the VA examines whether a collaborative care program for veterans with bipolar disorder increased adherence to treatment guidelines over three years. Next, we'll present a review article on the CADI study, the Clinical Antipsychotic Trials of Intervention Effectiveness. It demonstrates how the design of the study affects the clinical interpretations that can be made. Then we'll turn to two articles on substance use disorders. The first one analyzes the relationship between neighborhood characteristics and outcomes for duly diagnosed patients. The other article reports a clinical trial of vigabatrin for cocaine dependence. An editorial on this report highlights ethical issues encountered in the trial. Now we'll start with the treatment in psychiatry. Varinder Sharma and colleagues discuss bipolar II postpartum depression, detection, diagnosis, and treatment. Research on postpartum mood disorders has focused primarily on major depressive disorder, bipolar I disorder, and postpartum psychosis, and it's largely ignored or neglected bipolar II disorder. Preliminary evidence suggests that bipolar II depression appearing in the postpartum period is often misdiagnosed as unipolar major depression. The consequences can be particularly serious because beneficial treatment is delayed and antidepressants are prescribed inappropriately. Given the prevalence of bipolarity and the consequences of misdiagnosis, universal screening of pregnant women for bipolar disorder could be valuable. Inquiring about the woman's personal and family history of bipolar disorder can lead to early diagnosis and the avoidance of risk factors, such as general stress and disrupted sleep in late pregnancy and in the early postpartum period. Screening for mania and hypomania in women with postpartum depression might also be helpful. There aren't any validated tools for assessing postpartum bipolar episodes, but the Mood Disorders Questionnaire may be useful for screening. Assessment should include questions about a family history of bipolar disorder. Clinical features such as atypical symptoms, racing thoughts, and psychotic symptoms during a depressive episode are clues to the bipolar nature of the depression. In one study, postpartum bipolar depression differed from unipolar depression by its onset within two weeks of delivery and by the presence of less anger, less self-rated emotion, and more animation. Early initiation of appropriate management can improve the patient's quality of life, which can affect her family and her child's early development. However, the research on treatment of postpartum bipolar II disorder is not sufficient for definitive recommendations. Until there's stronger evidence, treatment should follow the same guidelines used in the treatment of non-postpartum bipolar II depression, provided that the selected medications are compatible with lactation. The benefits of breastfeeding should also be balanced against the possibility that sleep deprivation can trigger mood episodes. Alternatives include feeding the infant formula, 
using a breast pump to allow others to assist with feeding, and supplementing breast milk with formula in order to maximize consecutive hours of sleep. In general, carbamazepine and valproate are considered compatible with breastfeeding. Data on the safety of atypical antipsychotics in lactating women are limited, but there's preliminary evidence supporting the use of quetiapine during breastfeeding. To minimize the number of medications to which the infant is exposed, it's advisable to continue with the medication that was effective during pregnancy. For patients who are not receiving medication, a previously effective medication should be considered rather than trying a new one for which there may be more data on lactation. Antidepressant monotherapy should be avoided for prophylactic and acute treatment. For women with bipolar disorder who are already receiving an antidepressant, the need for its continued use in the maintenance treatment of depression should be evaluated because antidepressants may perpetuate the instability of the illness. For women with significant bipolar illness after childbirth, consideration should be given to the continued use of stabilizing medication after the first postpartum year. If medication is discontinued, it's advisable to continue psychiatric monitoring beyond the first postpartum year in order to ensure maternal emotional stability. Women should be carefully monitored for mood stability during subsequent pregnancies and postpartum periods. Consideration should be given to whether to use prophylactic management with previously effective medications. An alternative is to monitor the woman without drug treatment, but initiate it promptly if she develops symptoms, using medications that have been effective in the past. Psychoeducation and emotional support for the partner and other family members are also important. Help with nighttime infant care should be recommended to minimize disruption of the patient's sleep. There haven't been any studies of psychotherapy for postpartum depression in bipolar II disorder, but social rhythm therapy may be helpful. It includes maintenance of a regular daily schedule and steady personal relationships to help attain and reinforce mood stability. Bipolar disorder in a mostly male population was the focus of a three-year study by the Department of Veterans Affairs. Mark Bauer and colleagues report on enhancing multi-year guideline concordance for bipolar disorder through collaborative care. Across 11 VA medical centers, veterans hospitalized for bipolar disorder were randomly assigned at hospital discharge to receive either usual care or treatment in a collaborative care program. Previously, it was shown that over the three years, the veterans receiving collaborative care had less mania, better social role functioning, and better mental quality of life, with no net increase in total direct treatment costs. The current study was designed to test the hypothesis that collaborative care is more concordant with guidelines for treatment with antimanic medications. More than 300 veterans were included in the study. In general, they were severely ill and had high rates of medical comorbidity, psychiatric comorbidity, suicidality, and psychosis. The collaborative care consisted of three components, enhancement of patient self-management through structured group psychoeducation, provider support through VA clinical practice guidelines in simplified format,
and enhanced access to and continuity of treatment through a nurse care manager working in conjunction with a psychiatrist. Treatment of bipolar disorder was transferred to collaborative care clinics staffed by a part-time psychiatrist and a half-time nurse with a nurse-to-patient ratio of approximately 1 to 50. VA guidelines for bipolar disorder were released in 1997, but there's been no concerted effort to implement them. Thus, they were available to the providers of usual care in this study, but no specific effort was made to monitor or enhance their use. Each patient's medications were recorded at baseline and for each six-month interval over three years. Collaborative care providers were trained in the use of a simplified, one-page summary of VA guidelines. They also received ongoing technical assistance via monthly conference calls. In usual care, the providers received only the printed guidelines. These guidelines specify the primary use of lithium and secondarily valproate or carbamazepine for antimanic and maintenance treatment. Thus, according to the 1997 guidelines, at least one of these medications should be administered at all times for bipolar disorder. Each six-month epic was judged to be compliant or non-compliant with the guidelines if medication serum levels were measured and were found to be at or above threshold levels. Because the guidelines were compiled before the widespread use of second-generation antipsychotics for antimanic or maintenance treatment, they were updated in the middle of the study. The updated version includes the use of any second-generation antipsychotic with the recommendation that the dose should be at least 2 mg per day of risperidone equivalents. When a combination of drugs was used, a study EPIC was considered concordant with the guidelines if at least one treatment was concordant. As hypothesized, concordance was significantly higher for collaborative care than for usual care. Concordance at hospital discharge was between 50 and 60 percent for both groups, and the rates declined over three years. The rate for usual care fell to less than 30 percent within one year, whereas the rate for collaborative care declined more slowly and reached a steady state of about 40 percent by the third year. The analysis also examined the subgroup of participants who received any antimanic medication. The rates of guideline concordance were still significantly higher in the collaborative care group. However, concordance was greater in both treatment arms in the subgroup receiving any antimanic medication than in the overall study group. This indicates that the predominant source of non-concordance was a lack of antimanic medication rather than non-compliant management of medications that were administered. Our review article continues on the topic of drug treatment. Helena Kramer and colleagues review the design of the CATI study, the Clinical Antipsychotic Trials of Intervention Effectiveness. They point out how the design of the study influences the conclusions that can be drawn from the results, and they make suggestions for future large trials. They point out many excellent CATI design features. Other decisions resulted in a large study group, but inadequate power. Nearly 1,500 patients with schizophrenia were recruited at 57 sites and randomly assigned to five drugs, 
olanzapine, perfenazine, quetiapine, risperidone, and ziprazidone. However, the study group was divided into four strata according to the presence or absence of tardive dyskinesia and whether the patient was in the cohort entering the study before or after ziprazidone was added midway through the study. Each site thus had 16 patient cells and every site had at least one empty cell. It's almost always possible to design a study optimally to test one hypothesis, since all design decisions can be focused on only that one research question. The addition of even one more research question often requires design compromises that weaken the answers to both questions. With two drugs, there's only one comparative pairwise decision to be made. If there were five comparative pairwise decisions and no stratification, one would need about 400 patients per drug group. However, in Katie, there were five drugs, hence 10 pairwise decisions as well as stratification by tardive dyskinesia, cohort, and site. The necessary number of subjects is therefore much larger and adequate power is possible only for comparisons among olanzapine, quetiapine, and risperidone. It's well known that using statistical tests to compare multiple pairs of drugs without adjustment for multiple testing results in a proliferation of false positives. With adjustment for multiple testing without an increase in sample size, power is sacrificed, and this results in numerous false negatives. Even if both false positive and false negative error rates are dealt with in the study design, the answers may still be ambiguous. Katie was designed to show the superiority of one drug over another, not to show their equivalence. A successful superiority study of two treatments results in a 95% two-tailed confidence interval for the effect size that doesn't contain the null effect of zero. If that happens, the result is described as statistically significant at the two-tailed 5% level. A study is well designed as a superiority study if, whenever the true effect size exceeds the threshold of clinical significance, the probability of a successful superiority study is greater than, for instance, 80%. A statistically non-significant result in such a study doesn't mean equivalence, it usually means inadequate power. A statistically non-significant result in a superiority study should be regarded as a hung jury from which no conclusions about the treatment effects can be drawn. Two good choices in the Katie design were to include patients more representative of clinical practice than those usually included in clinical trials, and to structure the trial as a multi-site study. However, a multi-site randomized clinical trial is necessarily stratified by site, and both site effects and site-by-treatment interactions are likely. To consider them requires that each site have more than a minimal number of subjects in each cell of the design. Because every site in Katie had empty cells, it wasn't possible for the analysis to fully consider site or to consider the site-by-treatment interactions at all. 
statisticians have long argued for a single primary outcome in a randomized clinical trial. Katie did have one primary outcome measure, which was the time to discontinuation for any cause. However, it was left to the physicians at each site to make decisions about discontinuation. This contributed both to site effects and to site-by-treatment interactions. Approximately half of the discontinuations were categorized as due to the patient's decision. These decisions may not reflect failure of the drug, but, for example, dissatisfaction with the study participation. Also, in Katie, the patients were informed that they could discontinue at any time and be switched to another drug in phases 2 and 3. Since no drug currently can reasonably be expected to cure schizophrenia, this offer may have encouraged patients, families, or physicians to give up on a drug prematurely in hopes of something better. Even now, this problem could be mitigated by survival analyses that treat discontinuation due to treatment failure as an outcome and discontinuation for any other reason as a sensor data point. However, that would profoundly change the results. For example, about a 70% discontinuation rate has been reported for Katie, but the actual failure rate may be half that. Now we'll take a look at what happens outside of treatment. Gerald Stoller and colleagues analyzed the influence of neighborhood environment on treatment continuity and rehospitalization in duly diagnosed patients discharged from acute inpatient care. Patients with both mental health and substance use disorders pose a particular challenge to psychiatric treatment and substance abuse in this population is especially influenced by environmental factors. This study used geographic information system software and geographic variables that capture spatial relationships. These provided some of the individual and neighborhood factors that were examined in relation to outcome variables for patients with dual diagnoses who had recently been discharged from an acute inpatient unit. The 380 patients were given a referral for 12-step programs in the community in addition to individual psychotherapy. The network of possible outpatient placements included more than 100 facilities throughout the city. In general, the patients represented a poor, inner-city minority population. 60% were active cocaine users. There were two primary outcome variables. Treatment continuity was defined as the patient's attendance at the first outpatient appointment within 30 days of discharge. The other outcome was readmission to the inpatient unit within one year of discharge. Two categories of predictor variables were tested characteristics of the individual patient and variables associated with the patient's neighborhood environment. The patient-related variables covered demographic characteristics, psychiatric assessment, drug use, housing, criminal justice history, victimization, and disability. Variables associated with the neighborhood environment were a variety of geographic characteristics in a patient's home neighborhood. The choice of these variables was derived from established theories of neighborhood social disorganization 
and from findings on risky and protective factors relating to health and substance abuse. The geographic information software was used to convert the locations of the subject's homes and the neighborhood geographic features from text-based addresses to digital spatial data. For certain geographic features, such as alcohol outlets, access to the feature might influence the subject's behavior. In this case, the distance between the geographic feature of interest and the person's residence was measured. Other types of geographic features were thought to affect the subject's behavior through their influence on the overall character of the neighborhood. 43% of the patients kept their initial outpatient appointment, and 51% were rehospitalized within one year. Stepwise forward logistic regression was used to select the most influential variables. Only one patient-related variable emerged as a predictor of whether a patient kept the first appointment after discharge. A chief complaint of bizarre behavior during the index hospitalization decreased the likelihood of compliance. Geographic variables associated with lower compliance were living in an area with a higher rate of vacant housing and living in an area farther from an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting location. AA meetings appeared to be predominantly located in non-minority working or middle-class neighborhoods or in business districts, which are often not easily accessible for the patients in this study. Returning home following discharge, rather than living in a residential treatment facility or halfway house, also decreased the likelihood of treatment continuity. When both patient and geographic characteristics were allowed to enter the stepwise regression, a positive urine screen for opioids also emerged as a significant predictor of noncompliance. The second outcome, readmission within one year, was related to two patient variables, being Hispanic and having a previous admission to the psychiatric emergency room. A previous emergency room admission increased the likelihood by nearly 600%. However, having a chief complaint of depression decreased the likelihood of readmission. The two geographic variables related to readmission were proximity to a Narcotics Anonymous meeting place and a high percentage of people with high school diplomas residing in the same block as the patient. In contrast to AA sessions, meetings of Narcotics Anonymous are located in areas where there are concentrations of drug users. When all patient and geographic variables were combined, all of the independent variables remained except the chief complaint of depression. In our final article, Jonathan Brody and colleagues described their randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trial of vigabatrin for the treatment of cocaine dependence in Mexican parolees. No pharmacotherapy is currently approved for treating cocaine dependence in the United States. Vigabatrin is an anticonvulsant used most commonly outside of the U.S. to treat a severe form of pediatric epilepsy. It irreversibly inhibits an enzyme that metabolizes synaptic gamma-aminobutyric acid, or GABA. In this way, it rapidly elevates human GABA concentrations. 
cocaine's addictive properties have been associated with dopamine reward pathways, and it raises extracellular dopamine concentrations in the striatum. In animals, GABA suppresses striatal dopamine release and blunts cocaine-induced increases in extracellular dopamine in the striatum and nucleus accumbens. Vigabatrin treatment for stimulant dependence showed promise in two small open trials of Vigabatrin plus supportive group psychotherapy. This study by Brody and colleagues was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial. The exclusion criteria included visual field defects and related factors. Vigabatrin has been associated with a tardive peripheral visual field deficit that's typically asymptomatic and neither progresses nor resolves upon treatment cessation. Risk is believed to be dose-dependent, commencing at cumulative doses above 1,500 grams, although some studies have not found a dose relationship. In a prior open trial using the same cumulative dose as in this study, 132 grams, no abnormalities were found by visual field perimetry and fundoscopic examinations. The subjects were recruited from parolees of a Mexico City prison. Endemic cocaine use has been reported in prisons in Mexico, and cocaine use is considered a principal cause of recidivism among parolees. The participants were poor and unemployed or underemployed, and none had permanent telephone numbers. More than 200 individuals seeking treatment were screened. The setting was a substance abuse clinic 12 miles from the parole office nearest the prison. Reaching the clinic by public transportation generally required more than two hours each way. The participants were reimbursed seven U.S. dollars per treatment and were paid $25 upon completion of each treatment phase. There were three study phases, a one to three week screening period with two clinic visits, nine weeks of treatment with either vigabatrin or placebo with biweekly visits, and a four week follow-up phase with weekly visits. Urine samples for cocaine, opiate, amphetamine, marijuana, and benzodiazepine testing were obtained under direct observation at the initial screening and at all visits. Fifty patients were randomly assigned to vigabatrin and 53 were assigned to placebo. The vigabatrin daily dose was gradually increased to 3 grams over the first four weeks and was tapered over weeks 7 to 9. The dose was dissolved in orange juice, and the patients assigned to placebo received identical bottles of juice. During treatment and follow-up, the subjects received weekly individual cognitive behavioral therapy, which focused on supporting abstinence. The primary outcome measure was full abstinence at the end of the trial. This was defined as twice-weekly urine tests negative for cocaine during the last three weeks of the trial. Full abstinence was achieved by 28% of the subjects taking vigabatrin, but only 8% of the placebo group. Rates of abstinence from other substances were examined as secondary outcomes. There were 39 subjects reporting recent alcohol use at baseline, and the rates of full alcohol abstinence were 44% for vigabatrin and 6% for placebo. Of the 14 subjects taking vigabatrin who achieved full abstinence from cocaine, 
eight reported alcohol use at baseline, and six of these had full alcohol abstinence. None of the placebo subjects with full cocaine abstinence reported using alcohol. The subjects taking Vigabitrin also showed a greater mean reduction in irritability and greater improvement in appetite, but there were no differences between groups in cocaine craving, Hamilton anxiety and depression scores, or CGI severity and improvement scores. Of the 14 subjects in the Vigabitrin group who were abstinent at the end of the treatment phase, 12 remained abstinent during the four-week follow-up. Of the four subjects in the placebo group who were abstinent at the end of the treatment phase, two remained abstinent. The rates of adverse events did not differ between treatments, and no serious adverse events occurred in either group. In her editorial, Kathleen Brady describes the study as an excellent example of translational science. A hypothesis-driven exploration of a therapeutic agent based on mechanism of action led to robust findings in animal studies, followed by pilot studies in humans, and finally a small controlled clinical trial. Only 28% of the participants in the Vigabitrin group were fully abstinent at the end of the trial, and 34% had partial abstinence. But this population is very difficult to treat, and so this outcome is still reasonable. The trial brings up several ethical issues. Most recent estimates of the prevalence of visual field defects in patients treated with Vigabitrin range from 30 to 50%. However, visual field deficits have been reported only with chronic use of Vigabitrin, more than 12 months. While both cocaine and alcohol dependence are chronic and relapsing disorders, it's likely that shorter treatment can be helpful in facilitating long-term abstinence. A previous nine-week trial of Vigabitrin in a small group of cocaine and methamphetamine-dependent individuals showed no increase of ocular or visual field adverse effects. However, the question of visual field defects with even short-term use of Vigabitrin remains open. Furthermore, if further trials demonstrate efficacy and the use of Vigabitrin becomes more widespread, it's likely that it will be used for longer periods in larger numbers of patients. This would increase the possibility of visual field defects in some individuals and would raise the question of whether the benefits of treating cocaine and alcohol dependence ever outweigh the risk of vision loss. On the other hand, these substance use disorders threaten and ruin the lives of those affected and their loved ones. While every precaution must be taken to minimize the risks and further investigation of visual field defects is warranted, serious diseases warrant aggressive treatment. The fact that the investigation was undertaken with a group of parolees in Mexico might also give one pause. All appropriate protections were in place to prevent coerced participation, and the authors fully described the patient population, treatment setting, and informed consent procedures. The Mexican authorities welcomed the study because of their frustration with current treatment. A recent editorial in this journal discussed ethical considerations in a randomized study of foster care versus institutionalized care in Romania. It stated that research 
should be evaluated ethically within the local context in which the research is conducted. In the study of Igabitrin, all of the subjects received physical exams, including a visual field examination, and they were engaged in psychosocial treatment throughout the time of study participation. Prison and parolee populations can be difficult to work with because of ethical and regulatory issues. But this is a very treatment-resistant, real-world population, and we need to know more about effective treatments. This concludes the audio highlights of the November issue of the American Journal of Psychiatry. We invite you to our website, ajp.psychiatryonline.org, for the full text of these and other articles, including author affiliations and financial disclosures. We also welcome comments regarding this audio. They can be emailed to Jane Weaver. Her email address is jweaver at psych.org. Next month, our audio highlights will include mortality rates for bulimia nervosa and other eating disorders, risks for depression onset in elderly primary care patients, and adjunctive divalproex for children with ADHD and aggression refractory to stimulant monotherapy. We hope that you'll join us again. Thank you.